That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BX, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. Most decisions you can come back from. So you might choose a job and you decide this just isn't working. Maybe this particular organization or maybe this career path. Maybe I don't want to do public interest work for whatever reason. You can usually change that. I think there's seldom um, those decisions that you can make that you're never going to be able to reverse. And I think it's important to think about um your career in that way often, to know that you can take some risk. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. That doesn't mean that you're not effective, you're not good at your job, or that you're not strong enough or good enough or resilient enough or any of that. It's just sometimes things don't work out and you have to figure out what next. And just try to really be honest with yourself about what you want and why. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Dipti Singh, who, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Dipti. Hi, Merle. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. We, I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, I always start out by giving our audience uh, a, a brief uh, introduction um, regarding your your bio. Um, so let me do that. Do that first. Um, so here's here's what I have, and you can correct me if I miss anything. Um, so you attended UC Irvine undergrad. You received your JD at Berkeley School of Law, uh, which we actually have in common. The one thing we don't have in common is that you graduated Order of the Coif, and I certainly did not. Um, you summered at both Old Melbourne and Gibson Dunn. Um, you were an associate for a fairly brief stint at what I consider kind of a white shoe big firm. Um, in D.C., you clerked for the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California, um, externed and volunteered in India um, for both a political organization and a human rights organization. I hope we get to talk about that. Um, and for the past about 10 years, you've been in public interest uh, law first at the Center for Reproductive Rights, then the National Health uh, Health Law Program, uh, Betzetic, the Loring Project, and now you are the, the GC for Planned Parenthood uh, in Pasadena and the San Gabriel Valley. What did I leave out? I think you pretty well captured it. I don't think you left anything out. Girl, that is a lot. And you know what? I am so impressed. May I just say that I think you're a badass? <laughs> oh, thank you. I think it, it I mean, I, I've certainly hopped around quite a bit in my, in my career, um, but I've, I've, I've been lucky with some good opportunities. Yeah. So, so I guess my first question um, is, would it be fair to say that you are first and foremost a public interest lawyer? I think that would be very fair. Um, that's certainly how I identify myself, and I hope that's how other folks see me as well. Great. So before we get started, um, I, I'm wondering if anything in your upbringing, your childhood, you know, your parents' influence, your culture, if anything stands out to you that influenced your your uh, journey uh, that has has culminated in public interest? That's a big question. Um, you know, I think there's a lot that stands out sort of in terms of my upbringing and my family. Um, I'm an immigrant and, and a child of immigrants. So I was born in India and moved out here when I was fairly young, um, about four. 
And I think my family, like a lot of immigrant families, struggled quite a bit um, financially. And I think that certainly impacted my perspective um, as a young person and, and later as I became an adult and started thinking about what I wanted to do with my career. I think it, for example, impacted um, how I viewed folks that were experiencing financial and other challenges, how I understood the barriers that that might erect, how I understood how hard it can be to be a parent um, while you're dealing with all of that and have all of your own dreams and aspirations as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I certainly, that was part of it. I also was, you know, my, my father in particular, who had passed away when I was in law school actually, was um, very traditional in a lot of respects. Um, and at the same time though, that he was really supportive of me um, and I don't think held me to some of the gender stereotypes that I would sometimes hear him articulate, but he didn't, I didn't feel that he was treating me or having those expectations of me, but there was certainly a tension there that I was navigating with him. And I, I think that impacted me quite a bit. Um, so I think those are some of the things that stand out for me. I, I was really lucky that I had a family that was really supportive mm -hmm. of what I wanted to do, including when I made a transition from the private sector to nonprofit work. I had never really dreamed I would make as much money as I was making when I went to a law firm and then to give that up. Right. Um, you know, I struggled with that a little bit, but my mom, my dad at that time had passed away, but my mom was incredibly supportive and we sort of talked about her own struggles and um you know what how struggling financially how that impacted her and what she thought about me maybe leaving a career that was more financially lucrative to one that wasn't financially lucrative but would give me satisfaction in other ways um so i, I guess that's quite a long-winded answer <laughs> but to say there's a lot i think in my childhood that led me to where i am now no that that's great i i i uh, can identify with that when I was um, when I was uh, running a recruiting office and I was hiring folks and I, I uh, interviewed and, and made an offer to uh, a Hispanic a guy who was first gen um, and he actually you know he had gone to law school but he didn't like law school and he decided he was going to become a recruiter he accepted the job. And then I told him he wasn't going to have an office, that he was going to sit in a cubicle. And he said, oh, I can't do that. And I said, why? He said, because my mother will have, you know, will, will not be okay with that. She's going to want to see my office. And I can, I can convince her that being a recruiter works, but not having an office won't work. For me, and so it's interesting because there are things that culturally, I think all of us, you know, experience um, that a lot of people wouldn't understand, um, but we get it, and it affects our journey. Yes, absolutely. I, I certainly had folks, um, not my mother, but folks in my family, when I made that transition, and while I was early on in my career as a public interest lawyer, kind of question why, why I would choose that path for myself. Um, and you know, and a lot of people felt like you couldn't, you're doing this because you couldn't succeed couldn't elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, or you're doing this because you don't care about buying yourself nice things or having that financial stability, none of which is obviously true. But I, I certainly got that from a lot of my family members um, who looked at, you know, there's outward outward, I think sometimes ways that we can show success. And I wasn't showing them success in the ways I think that they were used to. Um, so I, I can relate to sort of, I think that person's um, experience in certain ways. And I've, I've certainly experienced people making comments like that to me as well. And I think a lot of that has come from family members um, and come from their own cultural perspective and upbringing and how they view the world and what success looks like to them. And it doesn't always look the way that I think a public interest lawyer perceives success. 
Right. So talk to me a little bit about the, t- the times that you decided to, to go to India to work. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those organizations and why you chose to do that and even how you found those opportunities? Yes, absolutely. So the first time I, I went was when I was in law school. I actually went for my um, the first half of my 3L year. Mm-hmm. I did an externship with the Human Rights Law Network, uh, which was based out of New Delhi. So I was there for the for half of my 3L year. And I actually cannot now recall how I identified them. I think it was one of my law school professors that might have um, pointed them out to me. But part of the reason that I wanted to go is because, as I mentioned, I was born in India, um, came here with my family when I was very young. But while we were growing up, we really didn't have money to go back very much. Mm. So I seldom saw my family in India, didn't have and don't have much family here in the United States. Um, And I think I struggled a lot with my identity uh, in terms of being an immigrant and being South Asian. When I was growing up, there were certainly times that I recall thinking, like, I wish I could just fit in. I wish I could be anything else but what I am right now. And as I got older, I I felt differently about who I was and um, being Indian. And so I wanted to go in part to connect with that part of myself, um, to be better connected with my family. My dad had passed away to get to know his side of the family more and to experience this country that I think was so profoundly impactful to the lives of my parents, but that I really hadn't experienced very much. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also just had grown really interested in human rights work because of some of my law school coursework. And so I went and I did this intern externship there um, for that semester. And it was really quite wonderful. I got to participate in litigation that was happening at the Indian Supreme Court. I got to go to um, various parts of the country doing grassroots advocacy, but also litigation in various courts around the country. It was a really interesting and impactful experience for me. And there were a number of just really wonderful attorneys there um, that provided mentorship and uh, support to me. And what was really also nice about that particular organization is that they had law students and lawyers from all over the world come and do an externship similar to what I had done. So you got Mm -hmm. to sort of learn from folks from other parts of the world and what they were experiencing, you know, learn from um, their approach to the law and to advocacy work. Um, So I found it tremendously helpful and it was such a unique opportunity that my law school gave me that I'm so grateful for. That's awesome. I, that was one of the great things about Berkeley. We called it Bolt at the time, but um, uh, the law school, I actually did a, a, a externship, my 3L, first semester 3L at, uh, in the, for the Ninth Circuit um, with uh, Judge Harry Pragerson. And that, that was just, uh, it was an awesome opportunity. And it's one of the things that if there's any law students listening, um, take advantage of those, those opportunities to, I mean, had I known I could go out of the country, I mean, that would have been even more amazing. Yes. And, you know, I think it wasn't really, they didn't have a structured program for that, but they were very supportive and allowed me sort of to help create it, which I didn't even think was a possibility. And so, um, I'm grateful for that as well. And, and of course, I went back again after I graduated law school for a couple months and did some non-legal work while I was there. So I know you I know you 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 rely on big firms, I'm sure, a lot to help you in your current position with Planned Parenthood. And so I don't want you to diss any firms or, or the practice. But I mean, I'm, I'm interested in how you figure it out uh, just, you know, so quickly. Uh, that you wanted to leave big, big law? That's a great question. You know, I, when I first graduated law school, so I clerked and I hadn't decided what I was going to do next. Um, I was considering going back to potentially O'Melveny or Gibson in LA where I had done my summer uh, associate jobs. And so I was still contemplating that. I was also thinking about going back to India, actually, and doing human rights work. And I got a position at an organization there, but I couldn't make it work 
financially. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were just not able to pay me enough that I would need in dollars, um, I think, to be able to fly back and do those types of things. So it just didn't make financial sense. And I thought I enjoyed my time at the law firms when I was a summer associate. And um, I had heard a lot of wonderful things about Williams and Connolly, including that it was a great place to get some litigation experience um, because, you know, it is a large law firm, but smaller than some of the other large law firms. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought being in D.C. would be a good way for me to get exposure to more human rights work in organizations because I still thought at that time that that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was at Williamson Connolly, I was actually pretty happy. I enjoyed my work. I worked with really wonderful partners. I had, um, you know, some in particular of a partner of color that was just a wonderful mentor to me while I was there. Um, and I got to do a ton of pro bono work. So I worked on a death penalty case. I did a landlord tenant case. A lot of my work was actually pro bono. And at the same time, I just knew that that wasn't, even doing as much pro bono work as I was doing, it wasn't enough. And I still felt like this is what I want to do every day. And I, I felt that way almost on a daily basis, even though I was like pretty satisfied substantively with the work that I was getting. And then this fellowship opportunity came available at the Center for Reproductive Rights. Um, And I'd done some women's rights work when I was in India. And so I thought maybe a reproductive rights position, which isn't something really that I'd contemplated before, would be a good fit for me. I had a former law school classmate who was doing um, a fellowship there. And so I kind of applied, not really thinking that I would get it. Um, And it so happened that I did. And it wasn't an easy decision to leave because as you pointed out, I hadn't been at the firm for very long and I did think they were really supportive of me and, you know, helped me get a lot of wonderful experiences that made me a better lawyer. And I thought this is an opportunity I can't pass up and I'm ultimately going to leave the private sector anyway. And so, you know, this is faster than I thought I was going to, but why not now? Yeah. So you, you, it doesn't, it, it doesn't seem like you've, you've looked back at all after that. I think there, there's certainly been times, you know, there's been <laughs> in my career that I've questioned it, especially when I've seen folks at law firms that get to work on really interesting, impactful cases, doing pro bono work, and quite frankly, have had more financial success than I've had for most of my career. So there definitely right. been moments when I look at that and I think maybe the grass would have been greener. Um, you know, which I think is just a part of reflecting, did I make the right choices? Could I have made better choices? But I think in in the end, overall, the path that I chose was the right one for me. And I I don't regret uh, not being in the private sector, although I understand why people choose that path. And I think you can do really amazing work if that is your path. So what a great segue. Um, You know, the ability to choose is huge, right? (laughs) The ability, the ability to to make choices for yourself, for your family, for your future, uh, for, for everything is, is, is huge. And you're now, you know, the GC of, of, of the, the branch of Planned Parenthood and that, that ability on June 24th, 2022, um, that the ability to choose was taken away for over 50% of the population, right? And that had to have changed a lot of for of your life um, going forward in terms of your career. Can you, can you talk to us about that and, and like explain to folks what I'm talking about here? Yes, absolutely. It certainly did. Um, you know, I think because of the leaked decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, we saw the writing on the wall, you know, months in advance, of course, and so mm-hmm. had been preparing for that moment. And I think had been preparing for even longer once the last administration appointed Amy Coomey Barrett to the bench. So I think we knew this day was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
so had begun conversations internally, thinking about what we would do to ensure access in California to abortion if, in fact, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey and removed the federal protection for the right to abortion. That day was just really hard. Even knowing all of that, it, it I think I felt just numb a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, it was hard to believe that this was our reality, not just for abortion, but for what it meant for other rights and really thinking about on a, on a, on a person level, like what this means for a young person that becomes pregnant, doesn't want to be pregnant, can't get the help of their parents or guardians or can, but don't have the financial means to leave. What is that experience for someone like that? Right. Um, that was really hard, I think. And as a person, I was litigating before this position and there were moments where I thought, you know, is what I'm doing now the way that I can make the most impact, that I can help support access? Um, and I think the answer was yes. I, I'm really grateful that I've had the opportunity to be at a place that provides healthcare services, that provides abortion care, and that really wants to do whatever it can um, to ensure that people have access to abortion and can make decisions about their families and their bodies and their lives um, according to their own beliefs and values and not those of politicians um, in the states where they live. And I've just really been inspired by our staff, our clinicians, our patient navigators, um, our healthcare center staff, just everyone really came together and rose to the occasion and I think was motivated to do whatever they could do and recognize the privilege that we have living in California Mm -hmm. um, to be able to leverage some of our very strong policies and laws to help in whatever way we can. So, so it's been about three months since that decision. And I, I know, you know, you and I had an opportunity to speak shortly after that and and you kind of uh, educated me and some others on what you're expecting and what was going on. You know, what's, what's the status in California now? I I know we were, you know, we were discussing the the idea that so many people might flood into California and other States. What, what's going on? I think that's certainly happened. We've seen an increase um, in out of state abortion patients. I think certain Providers have seen a greater increase depending on where they're located in the state. For example, if you're right at the Arizona border to the southern part of the state, I think there have been um, higher numbers of -of out-of-state patients there. Um, But so far, we've been able to meet that demand um, as best we can. And so it's been, you know, it was really a very hectic summer as we tried to figure out what does this mean? What are the legal risks? How do we mitigate risk while still providing care? Um, and having those conversations internally with our staff, um, making sure that we are creating operational systems that ensure quality of care while also mitigating risk and just working really cohesively as a team within my affiliate. And I know this was being replicated at healthcare providers across the country. Um, but it was definitely a whirlwind and sometimes just felt surreal, you know, if you pause and think about the conversation that you were having, talking about criminal bans, um, for providing care that you were just providing a couple of weeks ago. And it was, you know, you didn't bat an eye, you didn't think about it at all. It just, there were moments where we would pause and just think like, what, what is happening? What are we even talking about right now? Um, and, you know, unfortunately, now it's sort of becoming the new normal, um, which I think is a struggle. We don't want it to be the new normal. It's fighting that this can't be the status quo, of course. Right. But I think we've grown accustomed to we're, we're growing us accustomed to living in this new world and just figuring out how we can do our best to ensure that abortion care is available to anyone who wants it. Right. Well, I, I think that, you know, for several years, a lot of folks were comparing what could happen to, you know, fiction, right? (laughs) Movies, TV shows, and in particular, you know, books that had been written a while ago that were 
based in fiction and now we find our you know it almost feels like life is imitating art at this point but it's not you know it's it's a reality and it's it's you know it, it really is frightening yes um i think frightening is a good way of describing it <laughs> so you know you you alluded to other rights that this um this uh decision affects can you kind of talk about that a little bit Sure. You know, I think this is something that folks have certainly been talking about um, since the leak decision, but the idea that other rights that have been based, at least in parts, on the right to privacy are vulnerable because of the Supreme Court's decision. And certainly, Justice Thomas obviously called on the Supreme Court to reconsider some of these cases that rely on the right to privacy um, rights, you know, pertaining to contraception, the right to marriage, for example, I think those rights are vulnerable and people are um, appropriately um, raising that as an issue, that what what's next for this court that seems to be going down this on this path of overturning rights that we have thought until today to be fundamental and core to our ability to live fulfilling equal, happy lives, according right. to our values and beliefs. Right. I'm, I'm just sitting here shaking my head, but let, let, let's move on to, to stereotypes and, and <laughs> <laughs> cause I could talk to you about this all day, but we're not going to do that. Um, if, if, do you feel like, um, when, when people see you that they might have, you know, uh, immediate stereotypes about you uh, or that you've been uh, subjected to that uh, either growing up or, or currently. And, and if so, you know, kind of what are they? And, and, and some of them I know for me are right and some are wrong. What about you? Yes, I think I've certainly experienced that as a kid. I've experienced that as a younger person and now as an adult and as a professional, I've I've experienced stereotypes. Um, it, you know, some of it had to do when I was younger, I remember, and I, English was my second language and I struggled actually learning English quite a bit, um, you know, and had an accent initially. And I think just a lot of comments about the food that I was eating or the way that I spoke or the way that I dressed. And for me, I think some of that was layered on top of feeling like we maybe didn't have as much money as somebody else had and made, I think, made me insecure in a lot of ways. Um, and I think I experienced that kind of throughout my childhood. Um, I can certainly recall times where people would, for example, both of my parents had accents, would talk like slowly and loudly to them as if because they had accents, they couldn't <laughs> understand it as well. And I would just sit back and be like, what, what is happening? Um, and I, I have like vivid recollections of moments like that. Uh, I think one of them when we were out like at the tile store looking for tile um, when I was in college at this point and someone was just talking to my dad just really loud and really slowly. And I realized that's what was happening. Wow. Um, and then, you know, as a lawyer, I've certainly experienced... I think folks um, making comments or sometimes treating me differently. I've had, you know, I did a deposition once with a former colleague of mine and she was also um, Indian. And I remember the attorney sitting across from us just seemed sort of shocked that there could be two women Indian attorneys <laughs> doing a deposition <laughs> together. I'm like, right. And asked us, you know, like, are you Indian? You're Indian too? Are you related? <laughs> Yeah, just it was so odd. Like now there are two of us um, that are lawyers doing this work. Um, so I've, I've had experiences like that often being, and then being mistaken for her, uh, yep. people having a hard time keeping us straight for sure. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it's like the, I think the stereotypes around immigrants sometimes, the stereotypes around, I'm a cisgender woman, the stereotypes that that are associated with women, especially in the law, which tends to be a male, white male dominated field. Um, right. I think as, as I'm sure you have as well, I've, I've struggled with that at various parts, you know, in my career. 
Yeah, well, my my favorite um, is, or not my favorite, but one of the uh, things that I experience is is like I I could I could actually set up a meeting and take about diversity maybe and take um, a white male colleague with me uh, to a big firm and the people on the other side would actually talk to him instead of me. Um, And, you know, when you have something like that happen to you, it's like, like you said, it's like, really? Is is this really happening right now? Um, And, you know, and I think that that's where, you know, the training for folks and acknowledgement that we need allies um, in the room with us, because what should happen is that person who I brought to the meeting should say, I, uh, I'm not the expert here. Let's ask Merle. Let's hear from Merle. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen often. And I don't know if you've experienced that. Yes, I think that's a great point. Something related to that, that I think a lot of us have experienced is you have an idea, you raise that idea, kind of doesn't get any traction. Someone else maybe a man raises that same idea yeah. and everyone's sort of like, oh, what a great idea. We should definitely do that. Right. Um, and it can be really off-putting. And I think there have been times where I thought, did I not articulate myself well? Like maybe the problem is me. Maybe <laughs> right. I didn't do a good job of explaining this idea and they did a great job of explaining it. And that's why everyone's on board. And yeah. I have had times in my life where someone did acknowledge that, you know, like somebody else in the room said, I think that they just said that actually. Right. Or, right. You know, and I found that to be really empowering and also it motivated me to do the same for myself. So there's times now where I will jump back in and say, yeah, I just said that two minutes yeah. ago. That was exactly what I just said. And you're restating it. Oh, I and always I'm, do that now. I'll, I'll, I'll do it for myself. I just don't care. It's like, you know, I'll do it for myself. I'll do it for somebody else. You know, because if you don't, if you just keep letting these things go by, how does it change? Absolutely. And I I think it took me a while to get to that point because initially what I was doing was what I described and really thinking I must have done something wrong here. Mm -hmm. And I think it took me some time to gain the confidence that I needed to say, no, this isn't actually my problem. This is your problem. And be able once recognize that and then be able to advocate for myself, um, which isn't something that I think I did very well early on in my career. What, what did it take for you to be able to do that? I think it took, I think it took time realizing that, okay, I am competent. Like I can, there are things that people know more about and there are things that I know about. And I have been able to um, demonstrate that I can do my job well in different ways. I think that has helped. Um, I also think, as you said, having folks, to talk about these issues with in my career has been really helpful. And having other people say, oh, I experienced that as well, or I I heard that, I see that replicated often. And being able to talk about how so many of us experience what we're talking about now and realizing that we can't stay quiet because otherwise it's just gonna keep happening. It will never change. And I think having conversations really openly with my colleagues and my, um, friends and other allies has been really helpful in motivating me to advocate for myself, but also for other folks who I hope will have different experiences than I did, because maybe we can help create a different experience for them. That's beautifully said. So, so, you know, right now I noticed that there are several, and I don't know if you even have time to watch Netflix or any of the other streaming but I've noticed that there seems to be quite a bit more representation of uh, South Asians uh, in shows. And actually, from my perspective, a couple of one is really good. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, do you think, have you ever thought about it? And, and do you think that that kind of representation is, is helpful? Or do you think it just promotes stereotypes? It's a great question. I don't, I have a four-year-old, almost four-year-old daughter, so I don't watch a lot of adult shows. <laughs> movies. 
Um, but I have noticed that there are many more cartoons and even kids shows actually that have South Asian characters in them. Um, yeah. And my, my daughter is half white, uh, half Indian. And so I, I certainly have experienced that even with her shows, greater representation. Uh, and I, you know, of course, there's going to be times where shows are replicating stereotypes, um, sort of, I don't know how that doesn't happen. We're human beings. We all carry stereotypes and biases with us, whether we recognize them or not is another thing. Um, but I, I think it's been really powerful and I, and I think it has an impact on her to see someone that looks like her mom on TV. I just, I have a hard time believing that doesn't impact her. Um, and I, I don't know. And it makes me feel good when I see someone that looks like me on TV and when, you know, there's characters also that are mixed race on television and in kids shows now. And I think that's really wonderful for her as well, because she doesn't look either like me or my husband. Right. Right. Um, And that's an experience that I don't share with her. And I think it's important for her to, to see that wherever she can, because I know I'll struggle in some ways from understanding that experience because I don't share that identity. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, other than your, uh, cultural background. What what do you think makes you authentic? What what do you feel um, makes you makes makes you different and authentic? And and what do you relish that you bring to the table when when you're you're uh, doing your job? That is a good question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just made that one up. <laughs> good and bad thing. Um, but I think part of what makes me me is I am, I'm the type of person that's like constantly reflecting, um, both in my personal and my professional life, sort of thinking about what, like, what do I want for myself? What do I want for my family? Like, what do I want for my community? And I don't, you know, I don't always make the right decision, but I think that value informs most of what I do in my, in every aspect of my life. Um, and I try to ask myself that whenever I make a major decision, like, why am I doing this? Is this something that, you know, I can get up and I feel good when I look in the mirror for doing or not? And sometimes, you know, if the answer is not, then, and I still do it. I, I uh-huh. think, and that happens, right? Sometimes you make decisions that you're like, I knew this is how I was going to feel. I did it anyway. And really reflecting on why did I make this choice for myself? Having that inner dialogue already and really reflecting on that. Um, and it's a struggle, you know, it can cut both ways. Well, what, what I find it is a struggle is setting boundaries. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, how do you decide, you know, like if you make a choice and, you know, and you kind of went into it thinking this, might be good this may not when you just when you figure out that it wasn't the best choice how do you how do you decide to stop you know or to to not do it you know and maybe you're gonna let people down i mean do do you do you struggle with that that is definitely something i struggle with um absolutely so my you know, my last job, I actually left without another position, which was really scary for me. Wow. Um, I'd never done that before. I wasn't sure what I was going to do next, whether I was going to litigate, whether I was going to do something else. And that was really scary. And I, it took a long time for me to get to that point to say, I just, it's time. I need to, I need to do something else. You know, even if I don't have quite figured out what that something else is. And believing myself, believing that I would figure it out and that I would succeed at whatever I decided I would do next. Um, but I think that was really, that was certainly really hard. And with, you know, with respect to boundaries, I think that's something often when you're, particularly when you're a public interest attorney, it can be hard um, because the personal and the professional sometimes become very blurred. Uh, so that's certainly something that I've struggled throughout my career and especially as a new parent, you know, mm-hmm. um, coming back and trying to have some boundaries so that I could be a present parent was something that I found 
difficult. So, so, and a couple things there, because, you know, at, you know, I am a recruiter and this podcast is, is, uh, produced by, you know, MLA recruiting company. That's, that's a great little conversation to have about leaving a job when you don't already have one. I mean, most recruiters would tell you, don't do it. You know, let's, <laughs> let's, let's find you. So I've, I've talked so many people off the ledge, you know, because, it really is easier to find a job when you have a job, but I will say that if it if it's something that is just not working in your life, if it's causing you some kind of emotional distress, um, or you know you're even becoming unwell because of it, you know, it's anything anything like that. You're being mistreated. Um, it's not worth it, and it's so refreshing to hear, particularly a woman. Um, you know, step out like that, step out in faith in, in yourself and, and your, your, your abilities. Um, but did you have anybody giving you any advice at that time? I certainly had my friends um, and, you know, my husband, uh, who I obviously spoke quite a bit with before I made that decision. I, again, I was lucky at a really wonderful support network. And I think the reason that I ended up doing it was because I had folks saying, I believe you're going to find something else. Why don't you believe that about yourself? Mm-hmm. And having to reflect on that, like, why can't I, why can't I take this bet on myself? I'm going to, I'm going to be okay. And my career is really important to me. So I know that this isn't the end of the road, obviously for me, I'm going to find something that I love um, and that I want to succeed in. And so I had lots of conversations. It wasn't a decision that I made lightly. It was a long time coming. I thought about it a lot. I started doing some outreach, certainly, um, to folks to see what might be out there. And, you know, I'd been doing this work for quite some time. So I also knew that I had a network that I could tap into to ask about um, possible positions and to talk to folks and get their advice about how to think about what's next for me. Um, but there's a lot, you know, a lot of wonderful, I had a former boss of mine also had really, I think, advised me to think about like, what do you want to do next? You're a little bit at like a fork in your career. Do you want to keep litigating? Do you want to do policy work? Do you want to go, you know, like an executive director route? Think about that and don't make these, this decision based on fear because you just are ready for something different. And I thought that was really good advice as well. And that, that's the word that I was thinking when you were talking, it's, it's being motivated by fear. You know, it's like you, you didn't succumb to that. Um, and, you know, oh, you know, for the most part, I think there, that a, a lot of folks who are employed and have jobs and the way they choose to uh, show up uh, and the way they choose to allow themselves to be treated it is has a lot to do with being motivated by fear and and I applaud you for for not succumbing to that thank you it was you know it it didn't look pretty always getting there (laughs) (laughs) I think it worked out um and I'm happy with the decision that I made and I'm glad that I took the time to make it and I took some time off which was really nice as well and I and I realized I needed it um, that was certainly something that I was very lucky to be able to do. But. So speaking of stressful times, this, this pandemic, um, and you said you have a, I think you said a four-year-old, you know, how, how have you managed to, to, you know, get through this? I mean, it's not over obviously, but you know, what's your philosophy been throughout this? That's a good question. I have not managed always well. It's certainly been a struggle. Um, And I think for me in particular, like I have worked from home pre-pandemic as well, but I used to travel a lot. So while I was working from home, I still saw and had interaction with other human beings on these trips that I was constantly taking. And I think one thing that I struggled with in the pandemic was I don't really see anybody. I work from home by myself. I, right. I'm not interacting with other folks. And I have, my husband goes into the office. 
he has lots of interaction with lots of people. And so we're in different places at the end of the day where I'm like ready to talk and, you know, want to do things. And he's ready to sort of retreat a little bit because all he's right. been doing all day is interacting. And I think it's been, you know, sometimes a challenge to manage that dynamic, our different experiences. Um, and just kind of taking it day by day. I mean, we lost childcare mm-hmm. pretty frequently, especially that first year. And so trying to work while you're taking care of a three-year-old was challenging. Um, but also trying to make the most of it. I wasn't traveling as much as I was before, which meant that I had more time to spend with my family and friends. And I think that was a little bit of a the upside of it. And I didn't realize how much traveling and being out of the house had impacted some of those relationships. And so I think I took, um, I took advantage of that in a lot of respects and saw folks more. Um, but it, it certainly was a struggle, especially at times where, you know, early on in the pandemic, we really weren't seeing anyone. You know, we had a right. small bubble where I'd see my brother and his kids, but not very many other people. It was very isolating. Uh, and I think impacted certainly how I felt for quite some time. But now I think we've gotten into a good a good routine where we've just sort of accepted that this is the way it's going to be for the foreseeable future. You can't, and you, and you have to, figure out what your risk tolerance is and how to balance that with the things that make you happy about, you know, living your life. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we've talked about uh, stereotypes, authenticity, you know, has diversity, inclusion, equity has, you know, what role has that played in, you know, the decisions you've made in your career, um, and, and your life? I think that has been um, like at the forefront of a lot of my decision-making and thinking. Um, you know, early on in my career, it was nice because I had, I think, cohort, like a cohort of colleagues who we constantly talked about um, being folks of color, working in nonprofits, where often management was white, um, almost sometimes exclusively, sometimes predominantly. It was often hard to see someone in management roles that looked like you or had the same experiences as you. Um, And thinking, you know, as we did our own, whether it was hiring interns when I was, uh, you know, starting off in my career and later hiring attorneys and things of that sort about how to further um, diversity within the public interest organizations that I was working at. Um, you know, and I think in my career, I, I may have had only one or two supervisors and those even for a short period of time that were not. Wow. White. wow. Both wow. men. I don't think I've ever had a woman, uh, person of color supervisor. In the reproductive rights areas. Yes, I don't. That's amazing. That 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 maybe one, maybe one, and that and often and especially like litigators are um, tend to be, I think, white women and white men. Interesting. Um, It's the it's the male thing that has me dumbfounded. Um, But that's one of the reasons we're dealing with what we're dealing with, I guess. Wow. Um, so do you have, we're about at the end here. This has been amazing. I, I love talking to you. I could talk to you all day, um, but I'm going to let you go back to work and to your, to your daughter. Um, but do you have like, you know, uh, some words of encouragement or advice for other lawyers who, you know, may have thought about um, choosing the, the direction that you have and have been afraid to do it or um, maybe considering it now. I mean, can you, can you give them some encouragement or, or not? Um, uh, whatever, whatever you think makes the most sense. Yes. You know, the way that I've at least tried to think about it, especially when I've made big decisions that I'm maybe unsure of or 
scared of making is most decisions you can come back from. So you might choose a job and you decide this just isn't working. Maybe this particular organization or maybe this career path. Maybe I don't want to do public interest work for whatever reason. You can usually change that. I think there's seldom um, those decisions that you can make that you're never going to be able to reverse. And I think it's important to think about um, your career in that way often, to know that you can take some risk. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. That doesn't mean that you're not effective, you're not good at your job, or that you're not strong enough or good enough or resilient enough or any of that. It's just sometimes things don't work out and you have to figure out what next. And just try to really be honest with yourself about what you want and why. And having those internal that internal conversation with yourself when making these decisions is really important, I think. And reaching out to folks um, in your networks to talk about their experiences. I've done that throughout my career and I have found that really helpful and illuminating. Um, and, you know, there's there's no job, there's no position that's perfect. Right. There's always going to be parts of an organization or a position that you don't like and that's okay would be odd I think you probably weren't being honest with yourself if that wasn't the case right um because well, cause it's made up of people right <laughs> exactly we're human beings interacting like how could we not have challenges within these organizations so I think that's the other thing sometimes it feels like the grass will be greener but it's also just being honest like what is it if you're trying to make a change what is it about your current situation that you don't like Okay. Well, thanks to you, Dipti, for being here to be us with me today. And thanks to everyone for listening. Until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.